All right, well, good morning. It's good to see you here at Open Anchor Church. Hope you had a good week. Hope you've had a, a good weekend. Uh, maybe we're able to get out and enjoy uh, summertime in the Ozarks. Uh, my, uh, my boys and I went out yesterday to the Current River in uh, southern Missouri, southeast, uh, kind of mid-south Missouri, into the mountains, and uh, went hiking. And yes, it was hot and humid, and uh, yes, there were lots of spider webs. And then uh, we floated on little inner tubes we bought at Walmart <laughs> five miles down the river back to where we started, and it was a good time. Uh, you know, I'm 48 and I'm still learning things. One thing I learned from about yesterday is, uh, well, Samuel, my son, learned this too. Hiking is different than trail running. We trail run a lot, but hiking works different muscles. And paddling yourself on a, on a $5 inner tube from Walmart for hours really works your abs. This morning when I sat up to get out of bed, I thought, I, I was like, what happened to me? What happened to me in the last several hours that really beat me up so badly? But yeah, so if you're looking for a good ab workout, I might recommend paddling yourself on a <laughs> cheap inner tube from Walmart. Hey, this morning we are continuing in our, our Father teaching series, our learning adventure through the Lord's Prayer. This is week number 13 of a 14-part series, so that means after today there's only one more Sunday where we're going to talk about Jesus' wisdom that He shares to us, the guidance He gives us in the Lord's Prayer. And today's message is called Secrets. Secrets. As Kelly talked about earlier, there's a reason why we coordinate these things at such a high level. Secrets. Secrets. Here's what I've observed about secrets. We have a love-hate relationship with secrets, don't we? We kind of love them, but we also kind of hate them. We love them and we hate them. Think about it. As soon as you hear that something, some bit of information is concealed or is, or is only to be known by a select person or group, you immediately want to know more, right? Very few of us are like, eh, live and let live, that's fine. No, we want to know. What are you whispering about? What's, what's that secret handshake about? The idea of mysterious hidden purposes, uh, of, of mysterious and hidden plans, it really eats at us. It begs, begs us to peek, to pry, to agitate for answers. Why? Because at a fundamental level, we hate not knowing. We hate feeling left out, don't we? We just want to know. Hey guys, what are you talking about? What's going on? Let me in. We hate being left out. We hate not knowing. At once, secrets are intriguing and frustrating. Secrets are exciting, but also annoying. So, love-hate relationship when it comes to secrets. As children, as children, I'm going to give you a whole list of secrets here this morning, so whew, it's going to be good. As children, we know that our parents' closet is a place of secrets. Is this way for you? You don't go in your parents' closet. Why? Because there lie, therein lies secrets. Secrets of, of glory untold, goodness unknown. The secret, the parents' closet is a place of secrets, of treasures, because that is where Christmas presents might just be hidden. Maybe. Uh, as adults, we know that Area 51 is secret. Why? Why is Area 51 such a beguiling, beguiling secret? Easy. It's because that's where Elvis lives, that's where Jimmy Hoffa lives, and that's where the aliens live. Duh! 
It's a secret place that we want to know more about. For me, anytime I pass an obscure uh, road that is blocked with a, with a menacing looking gate, or I see a sign that, uh, that uh, uh, warning against trespass, my mind automatically slips into X-Files mode. Is anyone else like, where does that go? What's behind there? Why are they threatening to kill me if I climb that fence? Something is in there, and the truth is out there. Yeah, anyone else X-Files brain? Okay. My curiosity and my imagination, they work hand in hand. Anyone else? My curiosity and my imagination, they go together, they work together, and they construct some pretty wild theories. When I was a young lad, I was very slow to accept that every house doesn't have secret passageways. I mean, seriously, growing up, in all these movies, these houses had secret passageways. So I was pretty convinced mine had to have secret passageways too, but they were hard to find. Why? Because they're secret, right? I was very slow to accept that my house didn't have secret passageways, uh, to accept that it was only those big sprawling mansions where murders happened in the movies, right? So I searched. I searched everywhere I could in my house. I searched anyway, because secret passageways. Uh, when I was a teenager on vacation in Colorado, I remember the first time we drove through Colorado Springs, I saw this mountain with antennae sticking out of the top. Has anyone ever heard of Cheyenne Mountain? Cheyenne Mountain has an impregnable military fortress underneath it that is capable of withstanding nuclear strikes. And it's monitoring the skies for all manner of threats, foreign and domestic, all the time. NORAD. It's in Colorado Springs under a mountain. What? I want to go see this place. I want to go find out what's going on. Uh, yeah. Um, there are secret bunkers in and around Washington, D.C., into which government officials can flee in the, face of in the face of national threats and disasters, all by means of secret conveyance underground. Huh. Um, let's see, what else can I tantalize you with here? Oh, there are secret societies hiding in plain sight. Secret societies hiding in plain sight in our cities, at Ivy League colleges, in the halls of power. Maybe you've heard of the Freemasons. Yeah, that's easy. Uh, but have you heard of the Illuminati? How about the Skull and, Bro Skull and Crossbones Society? Huh? The Odd Fellows? Yeah. Yeah, that's true too. Uh, the Odd Fellows. Didn't think about that one, Sal. <laughs> Those of us on the outside looking in, we are curious, we are vexed, and we are suspicious. I think if we actually got on the inside and looked at what the, uh, the, the Shriners and the, uh, uh, the, the Masons uh, were doing, I think we'd be pretty disappointed, actually. <laughs> They're not ruling the world. They're not hiding uh, Da Vinci's you know, treasures and things. Uh, anyway, sometimes it's not the big, global, and ancient mysteries that, that, that capture our imagination. Uh, is anyone here still wrestling a little bit with not knowing the Colonel's secret recipe? I mean, I guess we're okay with that. That for years, my whole life pretty much, it's been out there as a secret and we just don't know. Apparently our society as a whole is just fine not knowing exactly which 11 herbs and spices make up Kentucky Fried Chicken's closely guarded secret chicken batter mix. Are you fine with this? Uh, 
I'm not. I'm not. Who does this supposed colonel think he is? I mean, really, who gave him this authority, this power, lording his family's golden fried mystery over us, over the general public? And to take it further, which branch of the military did this colonel even supposedly retire from? He never discloses this. And from the looks of him, I, I can't tell. He's got a white suit and a little white beard. That, that doesn't tell me anything. If he had a flat top, I could guess Marines. But I, I'm, uh, uh, I'm guessing here. A desire to see what's around the, the next bend. A desire to know what's behind the locked door. To what, what's hidden in the shadows. It motivates us all and it has launched a thousand ships. Curiosity about secrets has compelled adventurers to travel the globe, to seek El Dorado, the city of gold, to seek the fountain of youth, to, to, to search out Sasquatch, and to find the Loch Ness Monster. The urge to discover secrets, that is what motivated knights to quest for the Holy Grail. It is what drove Indiana Jones to seek uh, the, the, the Lost Ark and the Temple of Doom. And it's what drives you to keep listening to me this morning. You want to know more. We love the idea of secrets, but we hate not knowing stuff, especially when the secret is actually key to something we need, key to something that is good and to is in fact something that is the key to something that's life-giving. We want to know. We feel like we ought to know. There is a sense that if something is beneficial to mankind or is helpful to the world, it ought to not be kept uh, to the advantage of a few, right? It should be shared for the good of everybody. If it's really good and beneficial and it's healthy and healing and, and brings about wholeness, man, don't keep that a secret. Let's make everybody it available to everybody. This is, this is just one of the good things I like about Jesus. This is one of the things in general. It's one of the things I really like about Jesus. Jesus lived an open book in front of us. I mean, he, his life and his teachings were always there with the people. He never kept the important stuff about life and about God uh, secret. He never pointed to some secret, unattainable knowledge that only the few initiated uh, graduate-level disciples would actually gain access to. He, may, he lays it all out there for us. He doesn't keep it secret. He says, hey, this is good. This is important stuff about God. I'm eager to share it with you. I want you to know it. I want you to discover it. And ultimately, I want you to live in it. Everything Jesus does extends invitation. All may come. All may come. Jesus never leveraged his position. Je Jesus never leveraged his position by hanging his enormous information advantage over his listeners' heads. And this is important because religious teachers do this all the time. Religious leaders do this all the time. They, they bank on their information advantage and their positional authority to just get you to comply and you don't ask why. But not Jesus. He comes into the midst. He's like, hey, I want you to know. Everything the Father has told me, I'm telling you. You need to know this. And I love this about Jesus. Instead, Jesus comes as the living and breathing revelation of God. And he's lifting the curtain. He's inviting us in so that we can see what's going on in the really real. In that truly true place in heaven and on earth. You see what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the reality of heaven and the reality on earth together in himself. 
And he's saying, hey, there's so much going on here and I want you to know about it. I want you to know about this. Follow me. Taste and see. Touch these wounds. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, you've heard it said, but I say to you, verily I say unto you. Jesus, over and over again, his teachings were punctuated with, I want you to know this. Pay attention. Open your ears. Look. See. Touch. Taste. I want you to know. I want you to know. Jesus' life and mission, it was mysterious and it was confounding. I mean, why are we still wrestling here thousands of years later with the reality of Jesus coming to be among us? Jesus' identity, his mission, and his role in the world, in creation, and in our lives. We still wrestle. Why? Because Jesus is inherently mysterious and confounding. But it is not because he was hidden or what he was teaching was esoteric. It's because he was, he's divine. How do you merge full divinity into full humanity? The incarnation is confounding, and it is mysterious. If you've got it dialed in, if you've got it tied up with a nice, neat bow on top, you're probably wrong. You probably have a small, incomplete understanding of all that entails, and all that means that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he came to dwell among us. What? Jesus was divine. He broke into, God in the flesh broke into our time and space. Jesus' time with us, his life among us was mysterious, it was confounding, but it was an open book. Do you understand this about Jesus? How earthy, how human, how close it was. Yet at the same time, I think about the Mount of Transfiguration. When J Peter, James, or uh, uh, Peter, John, James... Peter James, Peter, James, and John, right? Yes, they, whew, it's not my notes, so it's, it's random access memory right there. Um, they wake up and they see Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses, and he's like transformed into this white as lightning, and just like, like his divinity revealed, and it's just like, what are we seeing here? What do we do with this that we're seeing about Jesus? How do we process? How do we live in the light of this? I mean, everything about Jesus was challenging. So, keep that in mind. Jesus' being among us was, was, was confounding and mysterious, yet his whole life was an open book. He never held people away and just said, trust me, I'm God. He never said, just trust me because uh, I don't want to tell you that. You just need to know to do it because I told you so to do it. He wants us to understand. He wants us to live into that reality. So as we reach the end of our exploration of Matthew's um, chapter 6 of the Lord's Prayer, uh, we come to two verses that are actually kind of placed right after the prayer. Uh, after the prayer has ended, and I think that it serves as a reminder and, and a key what Jesus says here at the end of the Lord's Prayer is kind of a key. I think it's the key to the secret in the life with God. After Jesus' prayer framework has been given, he circles back to make sure we don't miss this secret. The part of the prayer that opens up all the other parts. You get this? What Jesus wants to reemphasize here is like the key that opens up all the other things we've talked about that we've asked for in the Lord's Prayer. And forgiveness is that key. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness is that key. Forgiveness is the secret to life with both God and with each other. Forgiveness. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 15. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, 
May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's so abrupt. Right there at the end where you kind of expected an amen, or like, we ask this all in my name, amen. <laughs> uh, it's Jesus telling us this, right? But it's like, you should say Jesus, <laughs> but uh, I digress. He circles back and he says, hey, you have to forgive. You notice it showed up in the prayer, but at the end he's like, hey, you have to forgive here. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not... If you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Gulp. All along the way, Jesus has been inviting us into and leading us into becoming a forgiving community. A forgiving community. Our life in Christ is a shared life. It's a shared life that begins, ends, and is sustained by a willingness to, to, uh, be for, to, to forgive and to be forgiven. Okay, there's this dual dynamic that permeates all of this. We must be willing to be forgiven and also to forgive. This is a, a, a consistent drumbeat in the life with God. Be forgiven and forgive. If you think about it, our interaction with God ever since the fall has been accessed through God's willingness and ability to forgive our trespasses against Him. Okay? Not long after the fall, God institutes a system, a way for atonement to be made, for the forgiveness of sin to take place. Uh, the sacrificial system. Uh, as clunky and onerous and costly as it was, the sacrificial system implemented in the Old Testament, it was all about primarily at root what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. All about clearing the air so that a relationship with God could actually exist. Okay? The sights, the smell, the cost, the, the blood, I mean, the, 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 the carcasses. I mean, it was just like, ah, this is costly. This is labor-intensive, but if we want to have forgiveness with God, if we want to clear the air in our relationship with God, being God's people, all this smoke, all these smells, all this uh, just uh, debris that accumulates in the sacrificial system, wow, this is what we got to do. And it was clunky, and it was onerous, and it was costly. The pages of the Bible's first five books, they resound with the clash between our desire to be forgiven and our fickleness in actually being faithful. Okay, that's pretty much, if I had to say the story of the Old Testament, maybe the story of humanity in one sentence, it's the clash between our desire to be forgiven and our fickleness in actually being faithful. I mean, take that out of the Bible, what do you have left? I mean, we want to be forgiven, but we're not very good at being faithful. That's the story. So we have in the Old Testament a system of forgiveness that is temporary, that is costly, and it's hugely messy and hugely bloody. And ultimately, you get the sense that it was unsatisfying. Not just to the priests, not to the people, just to the people, but I think God was like, oh, I can't wait to get beyond this system. I can't wait for this system to serve in contrast to the ultimate cure, the ultimate answer, which would be in Christ Jesus. We get the sense that forgiveness isn't meant to be based on a process. 
or on a litany of rituals and formulas. Take this kind of animal, uh, uh, slaughter it in this way, and then burn it and offer it in this way. We get the sense that ultimately God's idea was that, hey, I don't want forgiveness to be stipulated on this kind of thing, these rituals, these formulas. I want it to be about so much more. And thankfully, we find that God's ultimate answer to forgiveness is found not in a sacrificial system, but found instead in a person. And that person's name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who came to live among us, who came to die for us, who came to be raised from the dead in our place so that He could lead us into the way of freedom and life everlasting. Jesus came and He answered the need. Jesus came, comes to open the way to forgiveness. He comes to make possible an atonement that heals, that heals our separation from our Maker and to assuage the guilt and the penalty of our sin and our disobedience and our offense toward a holy God. This is what Jesus comes to, to, to heal, to pay for. Jesus comes and He does that which no one else was qualified or able to do. Jesus' sinless life qualified Him to do for us that which we could not do for ourselves. He satisfied the righteous requirement of a holy God in order that all could be made clean and could be with Him. You understand from the sacrificial system, they had to find a lamb. They had to find an animal without blemish to offer as a sacrifice. And here Jesus comes to be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus comes and does for us that which we were unable and unqualified to do for ourselves. He satisfies the righteous requirement of a holy God, that requirement that all must be clean and sinless in order to be with Him. But here, here we have some pretty great news. Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus' ultimate ambition was not to simply come and do something for us. He didn't come to just die for us. Okay, is that news to you? Jesus says hanging on the cross, paying the blood guilt of our sin, was not the ultimate aim, His, his greatest ambition, to come and do something for us. He goes on desiring to do something in us, actually. Yes, He wants to do something for you, to atone for your sin so that you can be raised to new life in Him, in the power of His resurrection, yes, but He also wants to do something in you as well. He wants to, to affect a transformation of who you are. He wants to affect a transformation of how you live with God and with those people He's placed in your life. Did you know that? Do you believe that? That, God, that Jesus came more, for more than just the forgiveness of your sins. He wants to actually transform the kind of person that you are and how you live in this world. Jesus, Jesus, who is God's ultimate act of forgiveness, He invites us into a new kind of living, into a forgiving and a forgiven way of life. Let's hold those things in tension, that we are forgiven and we must be forgiving. A daily recollection of the great forgiveness afforded to us by God in Christ Jesus, it ought to inform us, guide us, and empower our willingness to forgive offenses against us. Do you understand that? We must recall our mind, take all those emotions, 
all the hurt, all the anger sometimes that we feel, be willing to set that side long enough, aside long enough for us to recall how great our offense was to our Maker. How great of an offense our sin was against God. And how much He was willing to, 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 to forgive in His willingness to send Jesus to live that perfect life, to die that perfect death, and to be raised uh, perfectly from the dead. I mean, let's start there. Let's be quick to remember that we have been forgiven much. So likewise, we must forgive. In light of what God has done for us in Jesus, the massive amount of forgiving and reconciling He has done in us through Christ's atoning work, what could another person possibly do to us that is unworthy of us being willing to forgive? I mean, really, if you think about it, I mean, all that God has forgiven us for, all that He sent Christ to accomplish in us, that great forgiveness we have, that massive amount of forgiving and reconciling, what could a person possibly do that eclipses that? That, that would set it outside uh, the circle of grace. It would say, oh, I'm sorry, God, I can't forgive that. I can't let that go. I can't lift that up to you and say, hey, please take this. No longer let this get, have control in my heart and my mind. Take this. Let me move on. Let me let this person go. Let, them let me entrust them to you. What could another person possibly do that is unworthy of us being willing to forgive? If forgiving others is key to, the, to God's forgiveness... If forgiving others is the key to God's forgiveness of us, how important is it then for us to prioritize its implementation here and now in our life, in our actual relationships? What if how we handle forgiveness either opens us up or closes us off in the life with God? We talked about this a few weeks ago and it's pretty tough, but it's like, what if our willingness to forgive or our unwillingness to forgive either opens us up in the life with God or closes us off in the life with God? Maybe you've felt this before and you know it's true. But what's going on in our heart regarding forgiveness of others? It does that. It has a direct effect on our uh, relationship with God, opening us up or closing us off. Now, I want to give a word of caution here. Let's be careful not to jump from there all the way to saying that you can't be a Christian if you are struggling to forgive someone who hurt you. Can I make that clear? You don't lose your salvation. You don't fall out of God's grace. You don't uh, cease being a follower of Jesus if you're really struggling. I'm having a hard time forgiving this person who hurt me. Yes, the way they hurt you, it's real. It matters. And it is hard to let go. But it's a daily decision to lift that up and say, God, you have to take this. You have to teach me how to heal from this, how to let this go a little bit more today. So let's be careful about jumping all the way to like, well, I must not be a Christian. I must no longer be uh, loved by God. I, may, I, I must no longer be someone who's uh, uh, following after Jesus because this is hard for me. This person hurt me and I'm having a hard time forgiving. Hear me say this, holding a grudge... It doesn't prevent salvation. Struggling to forgive, it does not cancel your salvation. But, hear me say this as well, a hard heart, an unwillingness to forgive, a lack of forgiveness in your heart, it drives a wedge and it hinders growth. Remember what we said? It closes something off inside of you. It stunts your growth. It wilts your spirit. A lack of forgiveness, it blocks the way forward. 
Okay? You become stuck. And that's exactly what it feels like, right? When you won't, don't want to forgive, you've been hurt so bad, you just don't want to let go because it feels unjust to do so. You feel stuck, don't you? I mean, that's how it feels for me. I just feel like I'm stuck. I don't know where to go. I can't move. So we feel stuck. Um, it blocks the way forward. It prevents spiritual fruit from growing in your life. And like I said, it wilts your spirit. And it leads to all kinds of frustration. It leads to all kinds of frustration. Nothing good happens from holding on to a grudge. Nothing good happens from being unwilling to forgive. Here Jesus is once again then, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, letting us in on the secret. He is calling us close to share a key with us. And the key is this. Forgive. You must forgive. Among my people, there will be a forgiveness culture. Have you thought about that in the church? We are to have a forgiveness culture. Quick to remember that we are forgiven. We have been forgiven. So we must be training ourselves, disciplining ourselves to be forgiving people. What does it look like for this place, Hope and Anchor, any church you're a part of, to be, and be, be becoming a forgiveness culture? What does it look like? What would be happening in a church that is cultivating a forgiveness culture? What comes to mind? Any thoughts? Accepting of all. Accepting of all. Okay. A forgiveness culture. Maybe one more thought? Constant reminder that the Lord has done for us. Okay, we push that to the front. Say, hey, it's not about my ability to forgive here. It's not my ability to, to get justice or to, to, be, uh, it, it, to look like I'm right or I'm the victim. We're going to trust this to Jesus. Trusting that He knows the way forward and we'll just stick with Him. How about that? Yeah, forgiveness culture is important. Now, one thing I recognized, and it wasn't in my notes originally, so I've got a little blue sticky note on my notes. Uh, this morning I sat down to, to recognize this. Forgiveness culture, this idea, this value of forgiving, it was a key feature of er early Christianity. It was a common theme taught by Jesus. Remember we talked about the, the Sermon on the Mount itself as kind of like the greatest hits album, the, the mixtape of Jesus' greatest teaching hits. Uh, these themes were what informed the early church. It was, it was the substance of the apostles' teachings to which all the early believers held, right? But this was a key feature, and thus it was picked up by almost every New Testament writer. Do you realize this? Not only do the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus saying these things, hey, forgive others just as God has forgiven you, but also Paul talks about it, and Peter talks about it. So who's left? I don't know if James talks about it, but he knew. I mean, look at these. Uh, let, let me have four readers real quick. This will be some audience participation. Someone uh, who has their Bible, just raise your hand, or has a phone they can look up a Bible. Okay, Jamie, look up uh, Colossians 3.13. Uh, someone else have their Bible. All right, Caleb, will you look up Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4, and I'll tell you the verses here in a second. Uh, someone else. Christy, 1 Peter chapter 3. And then uh, Kyle back there, I see that hand. How about 1 John? 1 John. Okay, uh, listen to how Jesus is, huh? 1 John, John chapter 4. 
Just turn there. I'll, I'll give you directions here in a second. Okay, but listen, understanding that forgiveness, this forgiveness culture was a key teaching, a key theme, uh, feature of Jesus' teaching that was picked up by the New Testament writers. Listen to how Paul talks about it and relays it in Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, and then Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, Caleb. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Man, so good. How about 1 Peter 3, 9? Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Is that a King James Bible? <laughs> All right. Trust me, that said something about forgiving others just as God has forgiven you. It said contrawise. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, 1 John 4.11. Okay. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is brought to full expression. Okay, so you see what's happening there. That's kind of the mirror image of this. Read that again, the first half of that again, Kyle. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and His love is brought to full expression. Okay, you see the self-same connection there? We forgive as we are forgiven. We love as we were loved. So this ethos, the, the, this, this, this dynamic, this value permeated the early church. And guys, it ought to permeate our culture here in our church here today. A forgiveness culture. We forgive because we are forgiven. We love because we have first been loved. It's not about how we feel about it. It's not even about really what happened. We must be willing to lift that up in the light of Christ and say, Hey, I understand that I was forgiven, so I must learn to forgive. I've been loved, so I must learn to love. So help me in that. You know, I was thinking about, um, it isn't about getting it perfect, okay? Hear me say that. Uh, you know Job? Yeah, maybe you've heard of Job. He complained a lot. You know, the whole story's predicated on, like, Job was, like, this perfect guy, I love God, you know, and all this terrible, terrible stuff happens. But what you see in Job's life is uh, he just sang Hillsong songs the whole time. He just, like, was high-stepping over all the difficulties. No! The guy was crushed. The guy was struggling. The guy was just, like, miserable, in anguish. And he cried out to God. He complained against God. He even accuses God. He does all these very, very human things. And I was reading a book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And he said, after all this, what was it that was important about how Job did what he did? He did all these things. He complained. He, he cried out. He even accused God directly. He was always talking and complaining and crying out to God. He never turned from God. So God was still able to do a work in him that we see come to fruition at the end of the story, right? So, I say all that to say this. It's hard. And it may be really hard for you right now to even imagine what forgiveness might look like based on what happened to you and the deep, deep hurt it caused. But trust me, Jesus isn't saying, I'm not saying that you must get that all put away and squared away today. But cry out. 
confess this difficulty to God. Stay facing God, following after Jesus. Say, teach me, grow me, help me, and heal me through this because I can't do it on my own. You couldn't forgive yourself. God had to do it. And I think at some level we can't forgive others unless God enables and compels us to do so. So if we are to live in the great forgiveness that was shown to us through Jesus Christ, through His life, His death, and His resurrection, we must go forth in that forgiveness. We must go forth offering it to others because we understand that it is the key to experiencing and enjoying God's great forgiveness of us. This is the great secret. The secret that Jesus wants us to know. The life of Christ and our Christ-likeness is framed and formed in the light of forgiveness. So, because of that, what needs to happen today in you? What needs to happen in you today? I mean, as I've been talking, maybe you've been thinking about some unresolved issues. Maybe you've been thinking about some unresolved hardship or conflict or lack of forgiveness. And you know there's something that has to happen. And I pray that it would. I pray that it would. And it starts with confessing it, lifting that up to God and say, help me. Show me the way with this because I don't think I can do it on my own. And he is faithful to help us in this. After Jesus ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit to equip us, to empower us, and to motivate us to do these very type of things. To live a Christ-like life. And at the heart of Jesus' very life was forgiveness. And likewise, it should be at the heart of our lives as well. So, let's pray. Father, I love the, the truth that Jesus brings to us, and I love His heart. I love how Jesus came and dwelt among us, and His words are recorded in the Bibles we have in our hands even today. And we find that, that the one who cre that, that spoke the very uh, world into existence is willing to come close to, to get down at our level and to speak words we need to hear, to share truths with us, to let us in on that secret of the kingdom. Believing that a forgiveness culture is possible among those who are following after Jesus. But God, Jesus himself lived here and he knows the hardship, he knows the hurt, the pain, the betrayal, and the loss. He knows how slights and offenses and wounds get hung up in our hearts and it's hard to let those go. It's hard to be healed of those things. And so, God, we need your Holy Spirit to come and to enable us, to cast a vision in us for something greater, for something healed and something whole. God, I pray for my friends here that are hurt, that can't even really in their own minds imagine what forgiveness might look like, what it might look like to let go of a need for revenge or, or to, uh, to let go of a grudge. But God, in your faithfulness, I pray that you would walk with us and work with us day by day. Bind up our broken hearts. Grow us in maturity. Cultivate spiritual fruit in us, a desire to see you glorified and for us to be able to live in the great freedom you afforded us through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Lord, that we would cry out that we would complain, but that we would do it all to you and not in isolation, not in our misery. Lord, I pray for my friends that might be walking wounded this morning. I pray that they would feel convicted, that they would feel compelled this morning to take a step in the right direction. We are to be living in the world as, as, as a reflection, as a, as a living example of forgiveness.
that great forgiveness you've given us in Christ and that great forgiveness you desire us to share with others. So God, compel us. Do a work in our heart. Do a work in our hands and our feet so we can make a move toward those who offended us, those we've cut off. And even if we just need to uh, let them go, set them free from the, the wrath that's been in our hearts, the need for vengeance, God, that we would let that go and that we would love as we have been loved and we would forgive as we have been forgiven. God, we lift this prayer to you in Jesus' name. So um, here's the thing. We're going to worship just a bit more. I think we're going to sing one more song. And uh, this is an important time, just like every Sunday. But this is a time to sit with the Lord, to listen closely, to gather around Jesus and say, hey, teach me, grow me, guide me in this. If you'd like to pray with somebody, I'm going to go stand at the back, and I'd love to pray with you. Uh, if there's someone near you that you'd like to pray with, that you could feel comfortable enough to say, hey, I need help in this. This is a heavy load for me to carry, but I know I need to be forgiving. So let's go to the Lord together. But the big thing is make the most of this opportunity, okay?